0: The Jewish views on the French presidential elections. Emmanuel Macron may have won, but how would it affect the Jewish community there? Finding one's inner self, author and rabbi David Aron talks about his new book. And Kisharon's Moonlight Walk, we learn about the event in aid of Autism Awareness Month.
1: But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Tony Honigberg. Irish supporters of Israel have expressed their concern over a decision taken by Dublin City Council to fly the Palestinian flag. The move comes after 42 councillors voted in favour of the People Before Profit motion. Councillor John Lyons, who proposed the motion, said 50 years of occupation had left Palestinians living under a form of apartheid much worse than South Africa. The Israeli ambassador, Ziv Bocker, stressed the harm it could cause, questioning what kind of message such a gesture sends to Israelis who are proud to now call Dublin their adopted home. A 61-year-old man has been detained after seriously harassing several Jewish residents with a meat cleaver in Stamford Hill. According to initial reports by the neighbourhood watch group Shomrim, witnesses saw the perpetrator intimidating a shop worker after having made an attempt to enter another Jewish shop where staff had the foresight to lock him out. He then threatened to kill two girls aged 8 and 14. He was later arrested by armed police. CCTV images of the man wearing a white hooded top have since appeared on social media. Leaders of French Jury have expressed their relief at the defeat of the far-right candidate Marine Le Pen in the presidential election, but also say they're concerned that she received more than a third of the vote. The Chief Rabbi of France and Creef, the umbrella organisation of French Jewish communities, have both decried the result as dangerous to democracy and minorities. Le Pen received 33.9% of the vote, compared to 66.1% for the centrist candidate Emmanuel Macron. Joanna Lumley has condemned what she calls the appalling cultural boycotts of Israel. Speaking at the annual charity dinner hosted by Tikva in central London, the actress said that she hates barriers, walls, and boycotts. Miss Lumley, who will receive the BAFTA Fellowship this weekend, also said one of her greatest heroes in life is Daniel Barenboim, the Israeli conductor who, along with Edward Said, established the West Eastern Divan Orchestra to bring together young Israeli, Palestinian and Arab musicians. Jewish leaders have wished Prince Philip, who will be 96 next month, a happy retirement after Buckingham Palace announced he will be stepping down from public engagements this autumn. Board of Deputies President Jonathan Arkush paid tribute to the Duke's work, saying Prince Philip has given long and tireless public service to our country for over 60 years. We salute him. Jewish Leadership Council Chief Executive Simon Johnson said the Duke of Edinburgh has been selfless and dedicated in his public service. Last week's announcement from Buckingham Palace said Prince Philip would attend previously scheduled engagements between now and August but was not accepting new invitations thereafter. A memorial service for Rabbi Lionel Blue was held at West London Synagogue on Monday. A sizeable congregation took part in a service led by several colleagues of Lionel, who died in December at the age of 86. Among the guest speakers was the former Bishop of Oxford, Lord Richard Harris, who was with Lionel a favourite as a speaker on Radio 4's Thought for the Day. Phil Pegham, former BBC producer of Religion and Ethics, also paid tribute. And finally... Britain's oldest synagogue is to receive £221,000 of National Lottery money to develop plans for a major project. The idea will be to improve access and facilities and to showcase previously undisplayed collections. Those behind the Grade 1 listed Beavis Mark Synagogue in the City of London are hoping to use the grant to scope plans for further works costing around £4.6 million. The synagogue was used by some of London's first Sephardi Jews in 1701. That's the news this week, and now here's Andrew Sherwood with a look
2: at the sport. Thank you, Tony. North London Raiders made history at the weekend after they became the first club to win every league and cup competition in Jewish football. They completed the feat by beating South Manchester 4-0 in the Peter Morrison final, with manager Dan Schaffron saying, This is a special achievement for the club and to make history is an incredible feeling. Elsewhere, there was drama on the final day of the Premier Division as Redbridge failed to pick up the win they needed to be crowned champions, their thrilling 4-3 defeat to Hendon handing the title to Oakwood. Elsewhere, Israel missed out on winning a 5th quad wheelchair tennis World Team Cup after they were beaten 2-1 by Great Britain in the final of the tournament in Sardinia. And finally, Israel will once again face Great Britain, though this time after being drawn against them in the qualifying draw for the 2019 Basketball World Cup. The countries will also meet this August in two friendly games ahead of this summer's Eurobasket, which Israel is co-hosting. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, it's been great because we've now been joined by the news editor,
0: Justin And Justin, we're going to look at the Jewish news this week, and the the main story, it's it's terrifying.
2: And I hadn't heard about this until I saw this, about the Stamford Hill knife terror. Yes, a man has been arrested for allegedly threatening Jewish children with a meat cleaver and a large knife in Stamford Hill on Tuesday evening. He apparently tried to gain entry to the shop, which is on Upper Clapton Road. He was thwarted when staff locked the door, but he then entered another Jewish shop, asking for the owner and saying, where is the boss? I'll kill him. Was anybody badly hurt? Um, No one was badly hurt, but after leaving, he's then reported to have shouted at two young Jewish girls who were aged 8 and 14, and he said to them quite horrifically, "You you Jews run away from here before I kill you. Oh, that's, it's the most frightening story. It, it's terrible to actually see that. When that story drops um, late on Tuesday night, and we saw it, it. It really is horrific. Fortunately, um, there were Shambin volunteers who who got to the scene. Uh, who got to the scene of the incident. Police then arrived a bit later on. They arrested the person in question. But yeah, no, overall, it, it's, it's shocking, especially when it happens basically on our doorsteps as well. But he is, they say, mentally ill. Not that that's any excuse. No, of course not. I mean, um, you'd have to you'd have to um, question his mental his mental state, his being, to obviously carry out such an attack. As I say, the police have arrested him. There's no confirmation of his mental state yet, but you'd have to think that obviously he wasn't fully with it, so to speak.
0: Now the other big story in, in this week is of course the election. The doughty fighter Freer setting his sights on an election hat trick and there's only one Jeremy on this ballot.
3: Yeah, a double-page spread on the latest involvement of the campaign for Finchley and Golders Green. Uh, Last week, for for followers of The Jewish Views, they'll know that uh, Jeremy Newmark, the chair of the Jewish Labour movement, has thrown his hat into the ring, challenging Mike Freer, the Conservative incumbent, for the seat. Uh, Mike Freer has a majority of about 7,500, so I think Jeremy Newmark starts off as having a large mountain to climb. There, There was a big controversy, I would say, around his candidacy because of the fact that he's going up against one of the community's greatest friends in Parliament. Uh, That said, as I said, campaigning now in full swing, we joined both candidates on the campaign trail going door to door while they're canvassing in the constituency. I would say that that Jeremy Newmark is focusing more perhaps on local issues at the moment, uh, talking about schools and the impact potentially uh, of funding arrangements under the current Conservative government, also talking about Brexit and uh, trying to fight the idea of a hard Brexit. Whereas Mike Freer perhaps is is campaigning more on Jewish issues at the moment, more on uh, his record in office and the fact that he was among those that campaigned very hard for, very successfully as well, for more security funding from the government for Jewish schools and shawls and so on. And it's, it's a fascinating contest, you know, for, for a Jewish newspaper. This is something that's likely to be a dominant uh, story for the rest, the, five, uh, the rest of the four-week campaign. I should also say that we uh, also feature here Jonathan Davis, the Liberal Democrat candidate in the constituency. And there are various other candidates, of course, from UKIP and other places as well.
0: And the Liberal candidate,
3: I, I gather, is Jewish. Uh, he is Jewish, absolutely. But my prayer isn't. He isn't. No, there's, there's uh, among, among those we've featured here, we've got two Jews and, and, and one not. Uh, I, I don't think being Jewish is necessarily going to be the winning factor here. I, I think you know many people will notice the fact that, that Jeremy Newmark is Jewish. He's, he's an Orthodox Jew, in fact. And uh, in particular, it's, it's a fun fact to note that should Jeremy be elected, he would be the first Orthodox MP ever to enter Parliament.
0: Has there never been an Orthodox MP
3: before? I don't believe there has.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. So you've got a lot about elections here also, because you're talking about the hearts of voters in Hartsmere.
3: That's right, we do. We, we feature uh, three uh, candidates from the main parties, the Conservative, the uh, Labour and the Liberal Democrat candidates, in that constituency, obviously one of the, well, in fact, the fastest growing Jewish constituency in the UK. And we've uh, received answers on key Jewish issues, as well as general issues from all three candidates. So well worth a look. Uh, Also worth noting that all parliamentary candidates Uh, From all parties have been asked by the Israel-Britain Alliance, which of course is a project of the Zionist Federation, to back a pre-election pledge uh, declaring their commitment to fighting boycotts and and other important things, including asking people to back the uh, new definition of anti-Semitism that was recently adopted by the government. And you've also got something about Joanna Lumley when it comes to boycotts. Yeah, a seamless transition there. Absolutely. I had an opportunity to speak to Joanna Lumley, of course, national treasure, absolutely fabulous actress, someone who attended as the guest speaker the Tikva UK dinner last week in London. Uh, She had an opportunity to speak to me about boycotts. She said that that I hate barriers, I hate walls, and I hate boycotts, and reassured uh, the community that she would never back such a campaign. I think as she... Uh, gets set to receive the BAFTA Fellowship this weekend, a glittering ceremony in central London. It's an important message for people to be reminded that top figures from the entertainment world are very much opposed on the whole to such boycotts.
0: Now there's another story here which which is quite horrified me as, as well, which is the heading says acid attack victim reveals trauma after 50 operations.
2: Yes, I'm afraid it's another terrible story that we've had to report on this week. Katie G, four years ago, she was attacked in East Finchley when she had acid thrown in her face at Zanzibar. And as a result of that, she's had to undergo 50 operations on the, obviously, the burns that she received from the attack. Is she improving or, or are things still bad? Um, right at the time, she suffered 30% burns on her body. I mean, she lost an ear. And this is just horrific when you actually read the article to f- and obviously see what the description is. She's had various skin grafts to repair the damaged face, the parts of her body. She's had grafts on her face, arms and shoulders. And one of the- again, just to end the article, the attackers haven't be- even been caught. So they've gone, no one's actually being held responsible for this attack. And there's another thing that's
0: caught my eye on this, which is, I think, a a good story, is the community saluting the work
2: of the, as the Jewish news calls it, the Grand Old Duke. I was going to say, was it a headline that caught your attention.
4: Yes.
2: (laughs) Yes, um, obviously, Prince Philip, um, who's going to be turning 96 next month, he's received various wishes from Jewish leaders from around the country, and obviously wishing him a happy retirement after he announced uh, that he'd be stepping down from public engagements in the autumn. And there's one more thing I'd like to ask you about,
0: because you talk about the Archbishop of Canterbury who tells Israel's president, Balfour is unfinished business.
3: Yeah, it's interesting this. As you say, the Archbishop of Canterbury now coming towards, I think, the final stretch of a 12 or 13 day visit to Israel and the territories. And he had an opportunity this week to meet President Abbas in Ramallah, but also Netanyahu and President Rivlin uh, in Jerusalem. And after his meeting with Rivlin, he spoke about the Balfour Declaration. Uh, he, he spoke in, in very glowing terms about what Israel has achieved, the extraordinary things, as he put it, that Israel has achieved. But he also said that, you know, as we look ahead to the centenary of Balfour later this year, that, uh, you know, it's unfinished business. And, and obviously he's referring there to the fact that the, the goals of Balfour and the coexistence that Balfour over, uh, you know, foresaw and hoped for, that isn't yet quite achieved. And there are still obviously things that uh, things within the Israeli society and, 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 and geopolitically that we can achieve and we hope to achieve uh, towards peace. And that's where we'll
0: have to leave it for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, leaders of French Jewry have expressed their relief at the defeat of the far-right candidate Marine Le Pen in the presidential election. Emmanuel Macron won by a comfortable 66.1% majority. But how will the new president affect the Jewish community there? I've been speaking to journalist Natasha Lehrer, who's based in Paris, to find out. And I started by
5: asking her, is there a great feeling of Jewish
0: relief at the result?
5: I'm not going to specify any religion when it comes to relief. I think everybody's relieved. The well, that's that not I quite true, sure,
0: is it? Because she did manage to get a few million votes, is not she?
5: She did. And it was a very, very stressful period, particularly between the first and the second round, when... In the first week, she ran what seemed like a quite a good campaign. And actually, there was a period, I think, when people began to really think, gosh, she could do it. And the feeling of relief when she didn't is indescribable. I cannot tell you how amazing it was. And certainly, I'm sure most Jews will share this relief. Certainly, the Jewish representatives of the Jewish community all came out and said that they obviously hoped that people would vote against her, would vote for Macron. It was a horrible, horrible feeling. But the relief is not confined to Jews. I think that's my
0: point. I take that point. But the most interesting thing about it is that apparently, and I don't know why I read this, but apparently there were some French Jews who were going to vote for her.
5: I think you can always find the odd example of people. You could find people in the UK who... Are BMP candidates for local elections, for example, Jews. You can always find scattered examples of these what seem like anomalies, but I don't think they're representative of anything in particular. I think that she she will have appealed to some Jews whose feelings about Muslims are the same as her feelings, who would love France to be cleansed of its Arabs, who would love that focus politically, but I don't think that they are very significant.
0: Taking it further now, because she didn't win, thank goodness, is it going to be easy with Macron? Is it going to be a better France from a Jewish point of view, if one can look at it from that point of view?
5: It's a very good question. I think that things are changing beyond French borders in the sense that I get the impression that ISIS or Daesh, as as the group is called in France, is becoming much weaker and therefore their attempts to bring the kind of terrorism that we've seen in France to Europe, they're losing ground. And I think that's already changing. That's nothing to do with, obviously, that's nothing to do with Macron. Uh, I, I have no idea what he thinks about Jews, but I think he probably has no feelings at all. You know, Jews are just people, as far as he's concerned, if that makes any sense. If he's given a chance to govern, he will be a fantastic leader for everyone. I don't think that he manifests any of that kind of residual sort of cultural anti-Semitism that I think some people still think lurks in the French establishment. I don't think he's part of that.
0: There are many French Jews who've moved over to live in England. In fact, there's one who lives across the road from me in London, who all say that they, and this is going back a number of years, who all say that there is a strong anti-Jewish feeling in France. And the ones that live across the road from me have actually said to me, we hope Macron wins. but We don't think he'll make that much difference. Well, those are two different points. I'm looking at it from the narrow Jewish point of view, but they're saying that Macron won't make that much difference from a Jewish point of view to the way the general French public feel. Well, let me put it like this. There have been a number of French people living in this country who have said they've moved to this country because of the strong feeling of anti-Semitism in France generally. And what I'm saying is, are there now people who will come back from Britain and live in France again because they think that that anti-Semitism will go? Or will it just continue?
5: I don't know where you live, and I don't know the people who live across the road from you. I think there are some people in France who clearly have suffered from anti-Semitism, people who live in the banlieue where relationships between Muslims and Jews have definitely degraded, become much worse in the last several years. No question. Wealthy Jews who move to London might, I suspect, be inclined to say that they have moved to London because of anti-Semitism rather than admit that they've actually moved because they pay less tax, for example. My guess is that all the Jews who who go to St. John's Wood synagogue for example, I know there are many, are not there really because of anti Semitism. That would really surprise me. That's an interesting I, fact. I think it's much easier. It's something that people can say a little too easily, I suspect. I've lived here for twelve years, personally, never experienced anti Semitism. I don't one can always dig a little bit and say that one felt a little uncomfortable for this reason or that reason. But I mean I think in general, upper middle class Jews are not really experiencing anti Semitism. That's interesting.
0: Well, can I just ask you finally do you think that Macron will make a big, big difference to France generally, not just from the Jewish point of view, but from everybody's point of view?
5: I hope so. I really, really hope so. I think until we see the results of the election on June the 8th, which will determine whether or not he's got which will determine what kind of a mandate he has. We can't really say. After that, it's going to be very interesting. I don't think I can remotely predict what will happen. Ideally, he will be able to work with people on the left and work with people on the right, and thus bring in a much wider slate of reforms than anybody who's traditionally of the left or of the right could do. That's what I'm hoping. That's what everybody's hoping. Wonderful time for France if he manage to do it. Thank you very much indeed, Natasha.
0: My pleasure. Journalist Natasha Lehrer talking to me there about France's new president and what it means to the Jewish community there. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And still to come on this edition is our Jewish Schmooze. And today, Tony and I will be joined by lawyer Denise Lester and our very own Kate Fulton. We were discussing the story we heard earlier today about flying the Palestinian flag in Dublin. Plus, Dana Thoman will be speaking to Joe Greenaway of Kisharon about their recent Moonlight Charity Walk. But first, have you ever tried to find your inner self? And if not, are you interested to know how you can? Well, author and rabbi, David Aaron specializes in Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism, and explains all in his latest book, The God-Powered Life. He's been speaking to Kate Fulton. Kate started by asking him why
6: he's called the God-Expert. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, You know, I didn't plan to become a God-Expert, but I guess what they mean when they call me a God-Expert is that I have immersed myself in the study and the research and the, let's call it the experiential experimentation of discovering the meaning of God and the feeling and the engagement of God in one's life.
7: And you are, just for, for our listeners, you're you're a rabbi, what we would call a proper rabbi.
6: I don't know if I'm a proper <laughs> rabbi, but I, yes, I am a rabbi. Uh, yeah. An orthodox rabbi. Yeah, well, if I had to give myself a title, I would prefer not to. I don't like boxes, but uh, I'm a I'm a user friendly rabbi, and not from this part of the of the waters. No, I'm I'm originally from Canada, Toronto, uh, but I moved to I went to Israel when I was 18 and ended up staying there. So I live in Israel right now in Jerusalem.
7: One of the things that you mention in your in your book, which is I have here, it's it's an incredible incredible book is about how to let go of your notions. How do you even go about doing that? And what are one's notions, if you like?
6: Yeah. um, You know, I had an interesting experience with the uh, actor Kirk Douglas. Uh, I met Kirk Douglas many, many years ago. And uh, in our first meeting, he challenged me and said that he grew up in an Orthodox home, but Judaism was only form and no content. And I said to him, you know, let me ask you a question. What if you were to base your diet today, he was 79 at the time, on your understanding of food as a child? What would you be eating? He said, junk. I said, okay, well, imagine you were to base your diet, I mean your budget today, on your understanding of money as a child. How would you be spending your money? He said, I'd be squandering it on junk. I said, right. I said, so imagine you were to base your understanding and connection to God Based on your understanding of God as a child, what would it be? And he said, checkmate, rabbi. <laughs> Do you mean I should grow up? I think people don't realize that words that we have since children, as as children, there's the meaning behind that word. And so if let's say the word love today has the same meaning it had for me as a five-year-old child. And how evolved would I be and, 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 and how successful would I be at love? So the first thing is to get in touch with what are your definitions intellectually, and experientially, and then critically and honestly and bravely look at them and say, hey, maybe there's a different understanding for the age and level of development I'm at.
7: Do you think most people think, well, that's just the person I am? You know, this is me and this is who I am and I can't change it because I've always been the sort of person who is frightened by X or Y or wants to, be, wants to travel and not to hold down a job. How do you change yourself in that way? How do you change your notion of who you are, your idea of who
6: you are? Well, that's a form of uh, slavery, You know, that I am addicted to and enslaved to my past. I'm enslaved to the persona that I perceive about myself. In my book, uh, The God Powered Life, I talk about how you are a soul, and a soul transcends our personality transcends our character. One of the things I point out in the book is I I, I ask uh, in, you know, in my classes, I ask people, Do you crawl perhaps as a child, wondering who I who would I have been if my mother would have married another man? And a lot of people do resonate with that question, whether they ask that question. That question is a very deep and telling question because what it means is I experience myself as independent of my personality, that I do intuit that I could have been born another person. And so I ask my audiences, you know, how many of you honestly can say you're not the same person today that you were five years ago? And almost everybody says yes. And that just proves it, that there's a you that transcends the particular character that you are playing right now, kind of like an actor playing a character. And that actor can play another character. And we have to first begin to believe and get in touch with ourselves as a soul that transcends our particular persona right now.
7: And do you need to be taught how to do that? Is this something, that is this almost like a process or can you just make a decision? You know what, I'm sick of being mean. I'm actually going to give Sudoka.
6: Maybe that's, that's a one-off right. thing. Uh, you know, it, it's really a question of getting to the place of consciousness and realization. You know, change isn't difficult. It's the realization that I must change. If somebody puts on a tie and it looks absolutely ridiculous, how hard is it to take that tie off? not hard at all. The problem is you just don't know you look ridiculous. So as soon as it becomes so clear to you that why am I wearing this ridiculous tie, it won't be hard to take off. The difficulty is to realize that this kind of behavior is destroying me and it doesn't have to be that way. I'm a soul and I can transcend that.
7: But if you are in that, it's like does a fish know it's in water? If you are in your own character so badly so deeply how do you how do you just get up for air
6: you know that is the gift of pain <laughs> that is the gift of identity crisis. When we look at our pain and say, is there something I'm holding on to that is dragging me down, that is like an anchor taking me to the bottom of my sea? And I think we have to listen to pain because pain is giving us a lot of important advice. And very often I have to have the courage to say, maybe I need to let go of something. And so I it starts with feeling and acknowledging and listening carefully to what is the pain in my life trying to say to me
7: and going back to the book that you mentioned the the god powered life what do we what are we trying to achieve there what what are, what are you telling us? I know we have to buy it and read for ourselves. (laughs) Yeah,
6: yeah. You know, the God-powered life, uh, everything I write is really about my own journey. I didn't write it because I wanted to write a book. I wrote it because I wanted to heal my own soul. And uh, I think a lot of people can relate to me because because this is my own journey and the questions that I'm responding to are the questions I myself have struggled with. You know, Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist, said that only the wounded doctor heals. And I believe only the wounded rabbi heals. And I'm a wounded rabbi. I wasn't wounded as a rabbi. I was wounded as a child. So by by getting in touch with God, you know, is personal transformative. But the problem is people have the wrong God. <laughs> and they're living with a childhood image of God that is disempowering and depressing and so that's why I, I you know I, I tell my audiences very often that, you know, I'm an atheist, because the God you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. And but when a person has a mature, sophisticated understanding of what we mean when we say God, then they tap into the power of transformation. So the whole twelve step movement has demonstrated Personal transformation through a connection to God. John, explain what this is about.
7: what the Twelve Steps transformation means for people who may not know, may right. not have heard of that.
6: Well, so in the world of um, addiction, uh, there is two fellows who develop something called Twelve Steps, and the Twelve Steps is demonstrated extraordinary results in helping people free themselves of their addictions. In terms of those 12 steps, which actually it turns out that a a lot of people involved with 12 steps are reading my books, because the first step is to first acknowledge I have a problem. That's the first thing. Until you accept that you have a problem, you can't change what you can't accept and won't accept. The second step is, and I can't change it on my own. I can't fix it by myself. The third step is there is a higher power that wants to and can help me change. And who that higher power is, 12 Steps won't tell you. That's up to you to decide. Uh, But I've met a lot of people in the 12 Steps program that says, you know, because 12 Steps doesn't really talk about who the higher power is, so a lot of people get stuck on that third step. And that my book is very much, or my books, I've written eight, is very much about the third step. There is a higher power that can and will help you. If you learn how to connect with the higher power.
7: And you also put out web you have a website.
6: Yes, Rab- you rabbi, have- rabbi dot com.
7: And there, is there material that uh, listeners can, can access?
6: Oh, yeah. There is tons of material there, free MP3s. I actually produce animations, spiritual animations that have uh, pow- empowering messages. I have a radio show uh, called Soul Talk on a uh, that comes out of Israel News Talk Radio from Israel. I do podcasts. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to help heal the world and heal myself in the process, too. Author and Rabbi David Aron speaking
0: to arts editor Kate Fulton there. And if you'd like more information on the God-powered life, then you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. Remember, we live-stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British Time. The address is coming up, but that means you can comment along as the discussion unfolds, and we'll try and read some of those comments out. It's just a number of ways you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you'd like to get involved, we'd love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk, or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com/JewishViews, or on Twitter we are at JewishViewsUK, and of course those details can be found on our website JewishViews.co.uk. Now, Kisharon held their Moonlight Walk event on Saturday, the 29th of April, in a bid to highlight Autism Awareness Month. Nearly 100 women walked 15 kilometres, that's just over nine miles to you and me, taking in London's most famous sights and raising £30,000 in the process. Community editor Diana Thoman has been speaking to Joe Greenaway, one of the trustees for Kisharon, to find out all about it. Diana started by asking her, what is Kisharon all about?
8: Well, runs a wonderful organization that really exists to provide opportunities for people with learning disabilities, with special needs, and to give them every opportunity that they can have to really believe in them, to nurture them, to educate. And particularly, it's brought in all sorts of innovative ways of giving young people with special needs and young adults opportunities in employment as well as education. Let's talk about the Moonlight Walk, which took place fairly recently. Uh, The Moonlight Walk took place not last Saturday night, but the one before. It was an unbelievable event. I went with a couple of friends and it was a gathering of about 90 women. We had a fabulous time. We were walking through the streets of London at night. We started about midnight and we walked for three hours or so. We did 15 kilometers and it was just beautiful. It was a beautiful, warm night. We walked the most stunning route along the river and past Buckingham Palace through Covent Garden and it was just really lovely to see London when it's quiet and there aren't crowds around and to do that in the name of a good cause.
9: I always thought of London as the city that never sleeps. Was it in fact quite quiet?
8: Well when we went past Leicester Square it was quite buzzing and it was the night that Anthony Joshua had won his fight so there were quite a few people out celebrating. But apart from that, most of the streets were uh, calm and lovely.
9: Is this the first time that there's been a Moonlight Walk?
8: I believe it's been going for a few years. This is the first time that I've participated. But I hope it's something that certainly continues. Next year, I'm planning to take my daughter, who was a little bit young this year, but there were quite a few mums and daughters. So that inspired me.
9: How old is your daughter?
8: She's 10. Was it videoed at all? Lots of us were taking snaps. Outside the palace, for example, but I'm not sure there was a video.
9: Say so your daughter could see you on a selfie. That's very good. Tell me, this type of walk
5: must have been reasonably tiring, I would think, because it's all on hard pavements, isn't it?
8: Well, there were quite a few different groups, so people could take it at their own level. And you know, truthfully, people are climbing Mount Everest, and our, the chief exec of Kisharon recently did a marathon in the Antarctic. So. I wasn't really complaining to do 15 kilometers. I quite enjoyed it. But having said that, there were a, there were different groups. There was the slower group, medium and, and fast, so people could take it at their own pace. If they wanted to be competitive, they could storm ahead, but you know, otherwise people could do it in a relatively relaxed way, but still chatting to their friends and raising money for a good cause at the same time.
9: Talking about raising money, presumably this was all done by sponsorship
5: beforehand?
8: Yes, exactly. And actually most people have set up... Uh, just giving pages so that the sponsorship can continue for a few weeks afterwards. I actually decided to do it for my 40th birthday. So when I organised a little party for my friends, I asked instead of gifts, people could give uh, donations to to Kisharon. And obviously, you know, organising that around a particular event, uh, people are are much more uh, excited to give.
0: Joe Greenaway, trustee of Kisharon, speaking to community editor Diana Thoman there. If you'd like more information, then you can visit our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Tony and me today is lawyer Denise Lester and Kate Fulton, and the subject today is based on the story you heard in the news earlier on. Irish supporters of Israel have expressed their concern over a decision taken by Dublin City Council to fly the Palestinian flag. The motion was posed by one councillor, John Lyons, who said 50 years of occupation had left Palestinians living under a form of apartheid much worse than South Africa. Denise, let's start with you. How would you feel if you were a Jew or even an Israeli? Living in Dublin, knowing that a Palestinian flag was to be flown.
9: well, I wouldn't be happy as a Jew or hypothetically an Israeli, um, and indeed, I'm not so sure I would be happy as a an Irish citizen whereby there is a disproportionate um, importance given to Palestine over all other nations um, I don't know um, what other flags are being flown and the city council or town hall but I'm not happy um, with the comments that you've uh, introduced this segment um, given by John Lyons and I think that it's irrespective of being um, a, a Jew there are other Christians and others of other faiths and none who support israel and um this sounds like israel bashing to me and israel is a a very vibrant um multicultural country um it's not as the palestinian propagandists would like to project
0: i i think it's fair to say that there are some arguments against the way israel has behaved towards palestine but that's not the point really is mm. it it's the point about apartheid i mean the it doesn't. There isn't a apartheid against the Palestinians.
7: Yes. Okay. That's that's the point, isn't it? I mean, there are so many. It, first, all, I looked at those pictures. Just by the way, I had a look to see what it appeared, and it's so threatening. These great big flags, really. Th- th- it feels a very aggressive gesture. It doesn't feel like a sort of a benign gesture of solidarity, which I suppose was was the was their well, their supposed intention. It feels like an a- aggressive act, and I also think. It displays such a huge ignorance, writ large and flown high. The the ignorance and the unwillingness to really engage in a debate. I mean, it must be, you know, saying about the, the there are about 1,500 Israelis there at the moment, mostly working, I think, in IT in um, in around Dublin. Hmm. That must be really horrible for them and really threatening and uncomfortable. And I think it's um, a very ill-conceived gesture.
0: But is it ever done uh, that... that- Countries fly other countries' flags. I mean,
7: well, it's usually solidarity, isn't it? Like something happens in in Paris after the after the massacres there, so we fly a, a flag. It's a gesture of normally good natured solidarity. Like in Israel, I think put, there was um, a flag they, they put the Knesset put up a flag in lights.
1: This is this is the, um, the Irish government though um, having solidarity with Palestine in inverted commas. And I went to Dublin uh, about two years ago, and the Palestinian flag was everywhere. It wasn't being flown on the town hall, but every union shop window that you walked past had a Palestinian flag in it. Someone had actually put a Palestinian flag on one of the monuments in huh. the main street in Dublin. I wanted to climb up there and take it off. My wife told me not to, not for the reason of taking it off, but I had the wrong shoes on and she was worried that I'd fall off and break <laughs> my leg. Um, I said in which case when tomorrow when we walk past I will have my trainers on the climb. When, when we came out the following morning the flag had been had gone but you do see support for Palestinians. I don't know what the Jewish community in Dublin feel, mm. and I don't know what the uh, Irish community outside of Dublin feel, because I've never spoken to anybody, um, so I don't really understand.
9: There's one particular person I'm thinking of as I um, address um, these comments, and I think that you probably should as get him on the programme as a follow-up, with, who is a Yankee Fackler, who's living out in Dublin. And doing very good work out there, and I think that he would probably have quite a lot to say about this. I also think um, our current chief rabbi has, um, being the chief rabbi previously the, the Irish chief rabbi, and of wider import, um, the fact that you know Ireland has historically been a country, a Christian country, and there is. There's the issue of Palestine as a country and uh, as an identity or an entity. And then there is the spin that's been given in relation to its existence um, by the councillor, which he's entitled to his point of view. But...
1: He's probably never been to Israel. Mm. I don't necessarily
9: agree with this. I mean, OK, so let's strip this down and I'm on air and I've come in cold on this. Palestine is not a place which respects human rights people are executed if they do not toe the party line it is not a place which mm. necessarily respects arts and music there was a bbc program dealing with just that i believe it is a place where there is a great divide between the rich and poor the israelis provide water lines and electricity Medical aid and lots of other aid to the Palestinians. Um, it is a place which is where Hamas um, supports the destruction of Israel, and there is a very large propaganda machine, and the imagery that comes out isn't necessarily reflective. Of what really goes on, people are scared. The more moderates in Palestine are scared to um, raise their voice. This is
1: why nobody says anything. This is why it's always against Israel and never for Israel because of, the yeah. the quiet, the Muslims are being quiet because they're they're frightened. Of, of well, it's past. not only
9: the Muslims; it's any other sector, uh, any other uh, group. I mean, you know, you could have Christians in, in Palestine. I mean, think I, I really want to say this on air that I, I, I am not especially somebody who goes to Israel regularly, but the thing that struck me from when I uh, land in, in Tel Aviv and I land in the airport, is that on the highways you have Arabic, Hebrew, yeah, and in English. Uh, English, and that shows respect for everyone that lives you don't, in that country.
0: But you don't. Well, that's you get that's into the places. important thing you've just said because describing it as apartheid is madness. Because in South Africa, when it had apartheid the black people were not treated as human beings and there are many palestinians who are in fact israeli citizens and are lawyers and doctors and are even members of parliament Which you would never have seen. And
1: and if you talk to any of these, and I have spoken to a lot of these in the past, they say there is no way they would live anywhere other than Israel because they have education, they have a living, they have property that is their own. Uh, they, They are not living in squalor, they're living in...
0: Like we're living over here. Looking at it from another point of view, I have uh, a number of Irish friends. I think the Irish people are among the loveliest people in the world. Absolutely. Dublin, in fact, is the only city in the world where if you are lost and you stop someone and you say, can you tell me I'm trying to go somewhere where X is, they will turn round and say, "We'll take you there." Uh, to be sure, we will. Yes, yes like and that. they do.
7: But they were also the first city to support the PLO in those in the yeah, old well, days. Were, it was were. the no. first. It was the first place. It's, it seems to be that, uh, as far as Israel's concerned, they are lovely people. But where it comes to Israel, there's a very negative and very one-sided message getting across. And I don't understand why that is, because, as you say, the, our, our current Chief Rabbi, for example, is former Chief Rabbi of Ireland and South African himself. So there's would, would know about mm. apartheid and would know how to maybe to, to get through but but the, they've been begging the um the Israeli ambassador has been begging the Irish government to not do this nothing seems to have got through and I wonder what it is about the psyche or about the the mentality in that city that would allow the Palestinian flag to be flown I, I don't not getting it well
9: I, I grew up um, personally I grew up in a road full of um, Irish um neighbors and I didn't grow up in a, a Jewish area and I found the irish to be the warmest and most friendly and the dialogue and commonality between us in terms of family and community is you know was was really warm and i have friends of mine in the irish community and i'm very respectful of the history and differences in our, in ireland and, uh, and the wider landscape but i feel that the irish council and dublin is being used as an instrument for anti-Israel and indeed anti-Semitic propaganda, because if you look at the conflation of it being um, anti—the the, the use of Palestine and the issues of Palestine being used as a, a as a route to cause unease amongst the Jewish community and Israel—and to say what has been said, then it fills me with unease, and it doesn't make me feel. Kindly towards travelling to Dublin, except to protest that the fan. I wonder uh, it should be taken down. I wonder
1: what the average Dubliner thinks. I mean, we're only going by this councillor, and th- does he really represent the average Dubliner
0: or not? As I said earlier, I I have some Dublin friends, and not that I've discussed Israel to any extent with them, but I know that they are. They know I'm Jewish. They're particularly. Interested in Judaism and talk mm. about mm. it, uh, and th- there is no feeling of anti-Semitism as such there. No. So I suppose the argument that they would use—I'm only suggesting mm. this—is the old one about, "Well, we're not anti-Semitic; we're just anti-Israel." Israel.
9: But what other flags are up there uh, uh, being well, flown?
0: There up? isn't. That's, well, there, that's right, well, the point. Well,
9: you see, well, I, well that, that's ex- entirely the point. It's giving a disproportionate visual place for. One particular area. I mean, if you have a European flag, because Dublin is part of Europe, then fair enough. But why fly any flags of any, any other, other country? country? That's that's what I don't the singling out. Yeah. And that's what I object to. And I do not think, as I've ind- endorsed, uh, I've said earlier, that when you have a country which engages in execution of those who do not respect any societal norms, um, from a human rights perspective, and I do do human rights work as a lawyer, there's a human rights interface. Um aside from being a Jew, it fills me with unease. Kate, okay, what, what I just, Interesting, what can
7: I just read a lovely quote that Adam sent? Dr Martin Luther King once said, the whole world must see that Israel must exist and has the right to exist and is one of the great outposts of democracy in the world. Surely he's in a position to quantify the apartheid claim.
0: Oh, that's if very interesting. People,
9: yes, interesting, isn't it? That
0: ought that's to be sent to the Dublin <laughs> City Council. <laughs> well, it may is <laughs> I
9: mean, Israel. I mean, Israel itself has a, a myriad of um, society within it, and it engages in debate, it upholds the rule of the law, it looks to accommodate everyone from every nationality and every religious spectrum. And it should have the right to exist. The bald fact is that we have not got peace because there are those in Palestine who want the destruction of Israel. There are also,
0: is- let's, let's be fair, there are also those in Israel who don't treat the Palestinians well. And we know about recent things that have happened, which a lot of Israelis are very upset about by taking parts of Palestine and moving into them and building places there and pushing the Palestinians out. So let's not pretend that Israel is perfect.
9: I, I, I well, wouldn't. It's I, the singling out as ever. It's just the, being singled I, I wouldn't. out. Um, I think that Israel is a complex society and I think that there are complex issues, which you've alluded to, but let's go back to the point, why fly one flag from one area and give it prominence amongst everything else. That, it, to me, there's not been any consultation nationally or internationally. It seems to be one man's will as a propaganda exercise, acting and the. Is it propaganda? or Is it anti-Semitism? Let's just call it like it is. It could be Very arguably. Strange. It could be arguably both because. Anti-Semitism has moved societally to um, the anti-Israel spin that there is out there. It's the new anti-Semitism, arguably. And uh, I would hope um, that those that are listening from the Israeli embassy and the Israeli community, if the Israeli embassy and community are listening, and those who are not Jewish, who hopefully are listening, will take note and uh, make their voices known.
0: But that's just uh, putting it in, in in a very simple way, but it needs more than that, doesn't it? It needs a sort of world attitude towards it.
1: We'll, I, ne- we'll never get that, though, will we? Because the world in its entirety appears to be against Israel.
9: Yes, and, uh, and anything that Israel does is news blocked um, that's good, comments, such as yeah. medical aid. Yeah. Sorry to I've just had a lov-
7: lovely couple of comments from someone listening to us live in um, in the USA saying, Greetings from the USA. Interesting to hear your views. I'm an American Christian that loves and supports Jewish people around the world. Nice.
8: How nice. There's That's That's lovely, a lovely one.
7: So, nice. from, um, so Sad Dublin is backing the BDS movement. So yep. that we're getting some great positive messages.
0: There are positive people out there. Absolutely. Yes. It, uh, is there, there's nobody listening in Dublin though? I take. We it. haven't, had, uh, haven't had
9: one from Dublin yet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to follow them as they come in. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I've dealt with, um, I have dealt with in some small way um, cases which have involved Irish law and Irish interplay, and the um, Irish legal system is a great one. So, you know, for the for the Irish society to be supporting a society that doesn't necessarily engage in uh, in, in, hum- in respecting the right to life. On occasion, and uh, <laughs> it fills me with unease as a lawyer.
1: Does this stem from the old IRA? Do you think who were against Britain, and, and is this the same sort of people, and now are against Israel? Well, they're still not for Britain, are they? So, you know, it's still got that divide.
0: Well, may, I don't think so. Somehow, oh, no. No, I don't I, think I
1: wouldn't either. have thought that was the case at all. It's very odd to try and understand why. That's a, this is the thing I can't
0: understand is why. And why this. also at this particular time? Mm. Because I mean, why have they never, why have they not done it before? Well, I think that, as I said,
1: they've always been supportive of, of the Palestinians. They've always been supportive of the Palestinians, not of
6: the yeah, Jewish people. They've,
7: they've been asking for about well, the last few years now yeah. to be recognising uh, Palestine yeah. as, a, as a state. I mean, yeah, and It seems be to be them. they've got a real thing about it.
9: Well, you I'd like to send I'd it. like to send out a message of hope and strength and uh, encouragement to those who live live there, not to be cowards. Uh, or and stand up and say, uh, uh, and to actually still stay there because it's it, because there's always the fear factor that um, those that are against um, Israel and all Jews want to play on. So uh, I hope that the Jewish community and the Israeli community remains vibrant.
0: I think they will. I think they will. I'm sure they will. With them, afraid we have to leave the discussion, but. My thanks to our guests, lawyer Denise Lester and Kate Fulton. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And don't forget those details are on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Well, it's time now for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Aaron Goldstein of Northwood and Pinner, Liberal Synagogue.
4: (inaudible) Pharaoh's heart strengthened and he did not listen to them. At the beginning of the National Week of Awareness on Mental Health and that from the Dying Matters Coalition, I officiated at the funeral of a congregant who had suffered for over two decades with severe mental illness much of the following day was spent supporting another young congregant struggling to live without mental health sectioning. Just like the figures regarding anti-Semitism, those relating to mental illness in our community, as with the rest of society, are shocking. The vicious cycle of a hardening heart or mind can have a devastating effect not only for the individual, but also for their closest circle and impact on wider society. We're beginning to be a society that no longer responds to psychological frailty with a pull-yourself-together, yet we're still far from a society that considers mental health first aid being taught alongside physical health first aid. We're terribly bad at talking about mental health, death and dying. I think that the British are particularly poor in this regard, referring to a stiff upper lip or following the troublesome example given in the Torah of Aaron, remaining silent when two of his sons die in a work-related accident. We mumble, I wish you long life or at simchas to avoid expressing our fears, anxieties regarding our own mortality and psychological fragility when to talk could act like a safety valve. The royal family, bastions of stony faced silence when confronted by death or tragedy, have a fresh approach. Princes Harry and William talking about their need for support when their mother died and sports shows now regularly talk about the mental strains of the trade. In the Jewish community, Jamie ambassadors such as Johnny Benjamin are much-needed presences in our communities. Hearing others talk about their struggles with mental well-being helps us to open up. At my own synagogue, Northland and Liberal Synagogue, we're proud to partner and support Jamie, who are providing workshops for a growing number of participants, eager to skill themselves to identify signs of mental fragility, approach stresses of e- exams, work and social media, and know how to signpost to appropriate agencies. Rebbe Nachman of Bretzlov, who suffered greatly from mental illness, said, When you're happy, it's easy to set aside time to pray with a contrite heart. But when you're depressed, secluding yourself to speak with God is very hard to do. This is sometimes the case for those with severe mental illness. They're no more in control than someone having a physical heart attack. Let us hope that we provide more encouragement for those experiencing mental struggles, encouraging them to talk knowing there are those ready to speak soothing words, also knowing when silence or a mere touch or smile may be more appropriate to speech. May we find and provide companionship for those times when we feel unable to speak to God, approaching God's presence with another, seeking repose from a source beyond human provision.
0: Thank you to Rabbi Aaron Goldstein of Northwood and Penna Liberal Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish news we have time for. Thanks to our guests, journalist Natasha Lehrer, talking about the French presidential election, rabbi and author David Aaron, telling us about his book, The God-Powered Life, Kisharon trustee, Joe Greenway. Thanks to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley, Sue Greenberg and Tony Honigberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the link to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part-recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Clive Roslin. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.